And our scripture reading for this morning comes to us from the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, in chapter 3. We'll read the last verse of chapter 2 as well, verse 17. Malachi, chapter 2, the last verse, chapter, or verse 17. We'll read to the end of the book. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet, you say, in what way have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi. And purge them as gold and silver, that they may be offered to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. And I will come near you for judgments. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans and against those who turn away an alien, because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I am the Lord, I do not change, and therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Yet from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, In what way shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will be no room enough to receive it, and I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts, and all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the proud blessed. For those who do wickedness are raised up, they even tempt God and go free. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him, 
for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, a day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble, and the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like a stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. This far the reading of God's word. And our focus will be on the context, but mainly taking it from chapter, chapter 3 and, and verse 1. So they, the people asked in verse 17 of chapter 2, where is the God of justice? Where is our God? The God who says he will come with justice. Waiting can be difficult. But waiting can also be exciting. If it's your birthday coming, you might know exactly how many days are left and you wait excitedly for your birthday to come and your birthday won't be delayed. But waiting for a baby to be born can sometimes be harder. Even more exciting maybe. But then when a baby is Two weeks overdue, you can get impatient. You can wonder, when is this baby coming? But you still know that it's coming soon. But for the Jews here, all they had was a promise. A promise that a baby would be born someday. That he would come born the Messiah. But there was no due date given. And to them it seemed like this baby was hundreds of years overdue. When is he coming? See, Malachi is writing this book about a hundred years after Israel had returned from their captivity in Babylon. They had come back to the land of Canaan, the promised land. They had rebuilt their temple, and they expected God to come in power and to, and to bring the Messiah to rule their land, to set up a new king, and again to establish their country as it was to have peace and prosperity in their own nation back. But here they were sitting and they were still under foreign powers. And there was no indication that the Messiah was coming anytime soon. And so they're still waiting. And it has been, here it has now been almost 4,000 years since the first promise was given in Genesis. And the people in the time of Malachi were tired of waiting. But they were also looking for a wrong type of Messiah. They were looking for a king who would sit 
on the throne like David their king did, to rule them in their own country, in their own land, so that they could have their own country back. But here they're becoming impatient with God. They're even beginning to doubt His Word. And because of that, their religion was growing formal and cold and their hearts dead. But they were blaming God, as we see in verse 17. God says, you have wearied me. And they say, well, how have we ever wearied you? Well, because they're blaming God that He sees evil and He does nothing about it, which they interpret to say that, well, God is permitting evil. He even delights in evil. And they say, where is the God of justice? But then in chapter 3, God sends Malachi, his messenger, with a promise to encourage his people once again. And he says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, don't be discouraged, because the Lord is coming. See, Malachi, his, very, his name means messenger. He is the messenger that is sent by God to say, with the promise to say that another messenger will be coming to prepare the way for the messenger of the covenant, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, the other messenger will come who would ultimately be John the Baptist. And he would come to prepare the way for the Lord Jesus Christ who would be born in Bethlehem. And so he says, don't lose heart, because the Messiah who God has promised and who you are looking for will come, but he'll be different, much different than what you expect. Because the question that God asks in verse 2, it says, but who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? You're looking for a Messiah, but you know what it is that you're asking for and looking for. And today also, we are looking for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ when He comes again the second time in the clouds of heaven. But if Christ would come today in the clouds of heaven, would we be able to stand before His face? Would we be ready to meet Him? And so our theme for this morning is Malachi's Advent promise. Malachi's Advent promise. And we have four main thoughts. And the first is that it's an undeserved promise. The first promise that God brought to Adam and Eve in paradise was very gracious and very undeserved. After Adam and Eve had fallen into sin, after they were hiding from God behind a bush, God came out and called unto them and said, where are you? And he promised that the seed of the woman would come to crush the head of Satan. And this promise was repeated in various ways through history. It was clarified where that seed would come from as we saw last week. And it has been almost 4,000 years now since that first promise. And now Malachi, he brings the last promise of the Old Testament that Christ would finally come. But you could say that this last promise in Malachi was even more undeserved than the one that was given in paradise. 
When God first promised that the Messiah would be born to Adam and Eve, you would think that everyone since that time would be seeking God so earnestly for that deliverer to be delivered from their sins. But we see the very opposite, don't we? That they reject God. Instead of believing God and earnestly seeking for His deliverance, even God's people, even Israel, who God led and redeemed from from the nations, they became impatient with God. And they're blaming God here of being unfaithful, of not being true to His promise. But God continually reminds them of His faithfulness. He says in verse 6, And he said, For I am the Lord, I do not change, and therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. The reason we are here today is because of God's unchanging faithfulness and mercy. Because in Genesis 6, you can read of how God destroyed the whole world with the flood, except Noah and his family in the ark. You can read of how God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19 because of their wickedness with fire and brimstone from heaven. God even destroyed Israel in part when they rebelled against Him in the wilderness, when they complained, when they sinned against Him. It says He consumed them with fire. And the unbelieving Israelites who did not want to did not dare to enter into Canaan, He consumed them in the wilderness, everyone 40 years and over. And God even threatened to destroy all of Israel and start over with Moses. But He never. He never, because He is faithful, He made His covenant, His promise, and He is faithful to His word. I do not change. That's why they are not consumed. That's why we are not consumed today, because God still has a promise. God still has a purpose for His church in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so God says to them, here is another promise. After almost 4,000 years, here's another promise. Another promise to remind you, another promise to encourage you in my faithfulness, even though we and they do not deserve it. And as we wait for Christ's second coming, or if it needs to be our first come, His first coming into our hearts, every day God reminds us of His promises in Christ that they do not change, and they're even more undeserved to us because of what we have, of what God has given us. We have the whole Scriptures, the whole Bible. We have all of history behind us to see. And God is patient with us. God has not dealt with us according to our sin, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities, He said, because He is unchanging. He has a promise. And we see, secondly, it's a much-needed promise. This is a much-needed promise for Israel. And it's a much-needed promise for us. They needed encouragement in a time when they had lost hope. We need to be encouraged so often. We need to be reminded so often that God is faithful, especially despite the circumstances that we can find ourselves in. Christ is faithful coming. Christ is coming again, and He will come suddenly. So we see that this promise was needed to assure them of God's love, because they had lost their love for God, 
and they'd lost sight of God's love. And yet, when God begins addressing them in Malachi, if you turn to chapter 1 and verse 2, God says, I have loved you, says the Lord. And yet you say, in what way have you loved us? So Israel is saying, how have you loved us? We, we don't see it. We don't see, we don't feel how God's love is towards us. They think He's utterly forsaken Him. Where is God? Where is His blessings? And yet God says, I have loved you. He expressed that love in paradise when He came to Adam and Eve and, and called out to them and said, where are you? He demonstrated that love to Israel when He, he took them out of Egypt as He led them through the wilderness, as He provided for them day after day, as he, as he, and as He brought them into the land of Canaan and continued to provide for them. But it was not because of anything in them. Not because of any worthiness in them. And the ultimate demonstration of God's love is when He would send a Messiah. That's what all these promises point to. And that's what 1 John 4, 9 and 10 say, that in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. His promises assure us of His un changing love. And His love for you is unchanging even though your circumstances make it seem like you, you can't find it. You, you, you make, it might make you ask, where is God? Why is this happening? How does He love us in the midst of all this? And yet God says, I have loved you, and here is the proof. It is in the promise in His Son. The promise is also needed to remind them who God is because they had lost their reverence for God, especially in the worship. If we don't love God, if we don't see His love for us, we lose our reverence for God in public worship. Again, chapter 1, verse 6, it says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If I then am the Father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts. God shows how they have corrupted the worship service. Their offerings that they were to bring were to be the best, the costly, the ones without spot and without blemish. All these sacrifices are supposed to represent Christ, the Lamb without spot, the infinite and costly sacrifice of God, the coming Messiah. But if you read through this book, the people were, were just giving some of their rejects, some of the leftovers. They're offering the blind animals, the lame animals, and, and the sick animals. And God says, would your governors even be happy with that kind of an offer? But you expect God to be happy and accept what you don't even think is worthy to keep yourself? In verse 10 of chapter 1, God says, It'd be better if someone had the courage to shut the doors of the temple rather than let all these people come with insincere hearts and insincere worship. Their hearts were not right with God. They were coming with reluctance. They were despising God. They didn't want to come to worship. And they certainly didn't want to have it cost them anything. 
In verse 13, it says they call it a weariness, and they sneer at it. How has the worship of God been to us? Is it a weariness? Is it a drudgery? Do we want God's blessings, and yet we couldn't be bothered to to worship Him? Or maybe we come reluctantly or sneer at openly or secretly, and we grow weary of it. People leave the church and say, what is the point of worshiping God? Where is the blessings that He has promised? Have we lost sight of the love of God and the reverence that He deserves? What does God do? He gives us promise that Christ is coming again so that we will worship Him with reverence and godly fear, knowing that He will return again suddenly. He is an unchanging God who deserves all the honor and all the reverence and glory. This promise is needed because they lost the reverence and worship, not only in a public worship, but in their homes. Worship Godliness and reverence for God begins in the home. If it doesn't happen in the homes, in the family, the children will not have any respect for God or for society and His worship. See, in chapter 2, verse 11, it says that Judah dealt treacherously. He married unbelievers. Idol worship and sinful practices of the heathens were brought into the home. And it destroyed the family worship. Verse 14 says they dealt treacherously. That means the marriages and the families were broken up by divorce. But verse 15, God says he seeks a godly offspring. He seeks a godly offspring. That's what he taught them in Deuteronomy 11 when he was giving them his laws. He says we have to teach our children day and night about the Lord and about his ways. In Deuteronomy 11, verse 21, he showed the blessings that come from it. He says, So that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land of which the Lord swore to give you, like the days of heaven above the earth. Family worship is to be like a spiritual oasis, like heaven on earth. It's to be the place where God is reverenced and, and worshipped and honored and loved. But here in the time of Malachi, the children were turning against the parents and the parents against the children. Sin had broken up the families, which is the sign of national decay. That was happening in Israel, and that is happening today. The reverence and the respect in society depends on the reverence and respect taught in the families, not only in, in, for society in general, but especially for God. In Romans 1, verse 30, and 2 Timothy 3, 2, say that in the last days, the children will be disobedient to their parents. Here in Malachi, he's saying that in, in verse chapter 4, verse 6, what we read, he says, the preaching of John the Baptist, the preaching of the messengers, the preaching of repentance and of faith in this coming Messiah is the only thing that will reconcile the families. 
The grace of God will reunite families and, and nations. And that is why God here at this critical time at the end of the Old Testament, He, he, he promises the coming Messiah, the solution for this degradation in society. And it's more needed then than it's more needed now. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is the only answer for our broken society, for our broken families, and for our broken hearts. God gives the solution and the answer here that Christ will come to deliver. As He has come as a baby in Bethlehem, He still comes now to reconcile hearts and families and homes and nations. He is the deliverer, the Savior, the Messiah. And so we have to hold this promise in front of our children, in front of our families, that Christ will come again just like He did in Bethlehem. That is why we see it, that's why we picture it every year around Christmas time, how the Lord Jesus came as a little baby in Bethlehem, and that He will come again in the clouds of heaven and to deliver His people and to bring His people home. This is God's solution. This is God's way of salvation. See, life was not going the way the Israelites had expected, but they were looking just at their circumstances. And they were drifting from God because they expected God only to give them earthly blessings. They only wanted the prosperity in their nation and on earth. But God gives them this much-needed promise of their coming Messiah who would give them so much more than earthly prosperity. And then we see, thirdly, it's an urgent promise. This is an urgent promise. Advent means coming or means approaching, but it has that sense of urgency, of haste. Haste? It's been 2,000 years. And they say we live in the last days since Christ came. Where is the urgency? But we can see that the world is getting restless, just like it was in the days of Malachi. Religion is being thrown out the door just like it was in the days of Malachi. Even God's people can grow cold in worship as it was in the days of Malachi. And like Israel, we might be tempted to ask, where is the God of justice? But God sends this promise to make us feel the sense of urgency, the urgency of His coming. It urges us not to delay in preparing for His coming. For behold, He says in chapter 3, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come in His temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. God will first send that messenger, which would be John the Baptist in this case, who would come with an urgent message to prepare the way. The messenger is a forerunner, someone who would run ahead into the towns where, where the king would be coming shortly, and he would tell the people that they had to prepare themselves because the king is coming. And what would happen, children, if instead of standing there welcome, ready to welcome the king, all the people stood there with stones and sticks ready to drive the king back? Or if they said like the Jews did here in the days of Malachi, well, if he hasn't come yet, he's probably not coming at all. Why be ready? It'd be another 400 years before John the Baptist came after Malachi. He'd come as a messenger to prepare the way for the Lord Jesus. 
But still, the people weren't ready. But it doesn't matter if it's 400 years, 4,000 years, or 6,000 years. It's all the same to God. 2 Peter 3.8 says that a thousand years is like a day to the Lord. And He calls us to be ready. Isaiah 40 also prophesied. He had the same message that Malachi is using here. And it says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low. And the crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. Isaiah here describes how the way had to be cleared, how the roads had to be prepared, so that when the king came, he could pass through unhindered. All the valleys had to be lifted up. They had to be filled in. All the hills had to be lowered, had to be cut down so to make a level road. Whatever was in the way had to be cleared out of the way. And it's a spiritual picture. The wilderness that John the Baptist would go in to cry out of from, it shows the, the, the spiritual wilderness, the, the, the condition of the people, the dry, the barren hearts of the people. And that needed to be cleared for the king of kings to come. I saw a picture recently of a, of a house in China. The house was still standing, but on both sides the highway had been built. And it stopped on both sides of the house. All that needed to be done was the house to be bowled over so the, so the road could be finished. And I wonder today, what obstacles like that house still stand in the way in our hearts for the King of Kings to come in? For the King of Kings to make His road to travel through our hearts? What stands in the way of in our hearts for God. Some were like the unfaithful stewards who said, the king delays his coming. I'm going to live how I want. Others were like the Pharisees and thought, well, I have to make my own way to heaven. I'll just try to keep the law. I'll try to be as good as I can. I don't need Christ. There are others like the rich young ruler who said, I can't part with my money. I want to stay here. And he walked away from Christ. But John the Baptist came preaching the need for repentance because the obstacles of sin which stood between us and God. Verse 2, the Lord said, Who can endure the day of His coming? Who can stand when He appears? If Christ were to come in the clouds of heaven today, what sin is still in our hearts that has not been repented of, not been washed away by the blood of Christ? This is an urgent call to be ready for His coming. In verse 1, in chapter 3, it says that there are many who delight in His coming, in whom you delight, it says, who eagerly await that day that you will see Christ. There are those who, have, who long to see Him, in His fullness, in His glory, in His beauty, when all your sin will be done away with. But there's others who delight, who think they delight in His coming, who only want the earthly blessings like Israel was here. And that's why the Lord asks, who can endure the day of His coming? Because you're looking for the wrong things. There's many who would not be ready. 
as there are those among us today who would not be ready if Christ came today. There's preparation to be done. As the messenger calls, make, prepare the way for the Lord. Christ came as that little baby in Bethlehem the first time. But the second advent, his second coming, he'll come as the king of kings, riding in glory in the, in the clouds of heaven. So advent has a sense of an urgent haste. And Jesus said in Revelation 22, verse 7, Behold, I am coming quickly. Quickly. Yes, it's been 2,000 years since he came the first time. And still he says, I come quickly. And the reason is because we don't know when we will stand before his face. Are we ready? And then we see lastly that it is a relevant promise. It's a relevant promise for the Jews and it's a relevant promise for us today. But we can have hope because Christ is coming again just as certainly as he came the first time. John the Baptist came as that forerunner of Christ. He preached that repentance to turn us from our sins to the living God. He was, his, was the, his message was that the Messiah was coming and that he would deliver us from our sins. He was the promised seed who would crush the head of Satan and evil and bring his justice. And then for 4,000 years since Genesis, the world waited, and the Jews who had these promises, they never changed. Why? Because they needed this promised mediator. Christ came the first time to purge his people from their sins. And that's what this chapter goes on to show in verses 2 to 5, which we can't get into today. But he comes to deliver sinners from their sins and to rule as kings in their hearts. And so that promise is still relevant today because Christ continues to purge away sin today. And when he says, when the messenger comes and says, prepare the way, he's not saying you have to get rid of your own sins yourself because you can't. These Jews couldn't do it for 4,000 years, and neither can you if, if the world lasts for another 4,000 and you live that long. But he says we need to rely on this Messiah who has promised, because he has come to purge away your sin. This is your hope. Our hope is in this Messiah who alone can deliver us. And so preparation for our sins means repentance and turning to Christ in faith. To acknowledge our sins before him. But his promise is also relevant for us today because he will come a second time then to purge all of creation from sin and to bring in that final justice that the people were wondering where it was and maybe where you wonder where it is today when you see how our society is going. Where is the justice? It will come. And then who will be able to stand? Your hope is in the God who does not change. There's no hope to be found in this world. This world changes so often. They, they seem obsessed today with trying to change everything. They realize that nothing is working, so they want to change everything. But this promise is relevant for us because it comes from the God who does not change. 
His word and his truth endure forever. And he came the first time to lay down his life to save sinners. And now the Bible says, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now our sins can be purged away through the blood of Jesus Christ, which still flows through this world to wash away all your sin. For all those who call upon him, here is your hope even today. Christ has come the first time. We're waiting for him to come the second time. And if you do not know him yet, he says, call upon me in a day of trouble and I will answer. He now still comes to sinners for that first time to be born in your hearts with His Holy Spirit, to wash away all your sins, and to, to make those crooked places straight and, and to make the mountains flat so that His rule will can enter your heart, so that the King can come in. He does so today, and He continues to do so until, as He says in Revelation 22, Behold, I come quickly. But those who refuse to repent and turn to Christ in faith will be found in that same spiritual condition when Christ comes. Revelation 22 goes on to say that he who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. However the Lord finds you, that's how you will be. Where the tree falls, that's where it remains lying. If your Lord finds you when He comes back in an unsaved, unrepentant state, that is how you'll be for the rest of eternity. But if He finds you safe in, the, in, in Christ, washed with His blood, that's how He will find you, and that's how you'll be safe for all eternity. And today, His messengers still call to prepare the way before the Lord. The state of our nation, the state of our churches, the state of her families are not much different than it was in the days of Malachi. And that is why this promise is still so relevant for us today. The same solution is still given. The Messiah, the Christ, has come. But 2 Peter 3 says, how it is now in our day is the same as it was in Malachi's day. He says that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of His coming? So they say, He hasn't come yet, so where is He? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. But, says God, the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That everyone here today, in this building, that everyone here that hears this online, God says He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that is why God gives us this undeserved and this relevant promise. And for those who look for His coming, 
He will appear the second time without sin unto salvation. And your comfort today is that the Lord does not change, that He will come to deliver you from this world and from all your remaining sins. Just like He began in chapter 1 and He said, I have loved you. Yes, sometimes it's difficult to see, difficult to understand, but His love is not dependent on you, not on your changing circumstances, but on the God who does not change. His promise is fixed in Christ. He demonstrated that by sending Christ the Messiah. And He will demonstrate His love again when He comes to take His people home, when He comes in the clouds of heaven to bring justice, to, to bring His bride to Himself and to cast all evil away. It is for this promise that you look.